It is said to be 19 days round trip to get to base camp and to get back at Everest, the top of the world. Once you get to base camp, it's 40 days of a trek up to the summit. Now, obviously, to get to base camp, if it's 19 days round trip, uh, coming back down would be easier than going up. So it may take a little longer to go up, a little less to go down. But let's do some math. That's, let's just say, eight and a half days to get to base camp, uh, 40 days. So about 50 days, and you get to the summit. You have worked 50 days to get there. Once you're there, it is said that the expeditions spend between 5 and 15 minutes at the summit before they turn around and come back down off the summit. But the vista is like no other vista that anyone could see there on the top of the world. If you like that image, you're going to love this message. We've been going to this summit in Romans chapter 11 that we come to today since June of 2022. So we've been working at this for some 15 months. But now we are here. And I want you to take it all in, in all of its glory. We won't stay long, so let's dig in and enjoy the view. It is breathtaking to see God's plan of salvation. But not near as breathtaking as participating in God's plan of salvation, experiencing the grace of God and Jesus Christ to save us and deliver us from ourselves and our sinful indulgence Praise be to God for forgiveness found in Jesus Christ. Of course, another question this text asks us is, do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Do you even enjoy the view? Are you interested in the view? Come with me to Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. These majestic verses of doxology that end this great chapter. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. I'm really happy that you're here with us this morning. Thank you for coming. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Here. The word of the Lord. 
This morning, I want to go two different directions. First, I want to make three observations about this doxology that concludes Romans 11. And then I want to raise next to your heart and mine the three questions that this text asks us. Think of it with me. So first, let's make three observations about the wonder of this doxology. Don't miss how 11.33 begins. Oh! Now there are different kinds of oh's. This is a great kind. The best kind. And a spontaneous uh, a spontaneous exclamation of something glorious. Oh, that's great. Oh. Now there are other kind of oaths. 1937, the Hindenburg goes down while it's landing in Germany. As it goes, landing from Germany in New Jersey. The radio broadcast is live and a famous commentator is narrating this glorious landing that turns into a great tragedy where 35 people are killed. And they're killed in the spontaneous combustion of the whole Zeppelin as it is landing. And it was tragic. He's describing it. Now, by the way, this is in the 1930s when life was valued on a different level than it's valued now. But he is overcome with lament and exclaims as the whole Hindenburg goes up, oh, but it's an awe of tragedy. This is not one of those kind of awes, but it's an awe of glory. Maybe when you uh, took the train from Williams, Arizona up to the Grand Canyon and you got off on the platform and you walked up that incline and right before you broke open the most incredible horizon you'd ever seen and the field of vision was so wide, you went, oh. And it was, oh, because it was glorious. Don't miss this word. You see, Mounts, it's just, oh, what, what's wrong with you? N- no, it's, it's not just your garden variety, oh. It's a spontaneous expression of great glory. Now, there are three observations. First, this summing doxology looks back over the whole book of Romans where God pulls back the curtain to explain his plan of salvation to save humanity. You see, the reader's question as he reads Romans 11 and this doxology at the end, he says to himself or she says to herself, now wait a minute, is this the doxology that completes the thinking of Romans 9, 10, and 11, this section? Or is this a doxology that completes not only Romans 9, 10, and 11, a special section describing how Israel's rejection of Christ gave the Gentiles an opportunity to believe in him that made Israel jealous and will lead to a future day when they will embrace Jesus as their Messiah. What an ingenious plan that Paul unveils. Remember, he says in verse 25, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. So he has let it out, Romans 9, 10, and 11. But he spent Romans 1 through 8 before we ever got to 9 explaining the glory of the gospel of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. This good news announcement about Jesus, 
God made us in his image to relate to him. We, believing that our way of life was better than his and what he had instructed us to do, walked away from his plans for us, framed in his commands, disobeyed him, plunged us into our sinful indulgence. By the way, how's that working for us all these century and millennia later? But God was not put out. He ran after us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. That's Christmas. He offered himself as a sacrifice to atone for our sin, taking our hell upon his body so that we could be forgiven should we receive Jesus Christ as Savior. Then he was raised from the dead to give us hope. Here we're soldiering through a week where two in our church lost their mothers. We live in a land of death. But the tomb of Jesus Christ is empty. And he has given us the durable excuse for hope. For all of life, we can live with this hope if we have Jesus Christ as our Savior. And then when we die, we die with that hope and realize that hope when our faith becomes sight and we go home to be with him. What a Savior. Oh, that's good. That's how he starts. Now, Chapter 12, verse 1, gives us some clue to argue that it's about 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and not just 9, 10, and 11, because he he argues this is dipping in a little bit to our toes in the water for next week. It's a glorious passage. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, on the basis of the mercies of God. Why would he start chapter 12 like that? Because he's looking back over chapters 1 through 11, And in summary, that's an expression of the mercy of God offered to us in Jesus Christ. Can I ask you a personal question this morning? It's just us here. Are you a Zillow stalker? You know, one of your friends, you know, they say, hey, I bought a house. Oh, you did? Oh, that's great. Really happy for you. And you drive by and say, that place is, why did they move? Why are they going to move? That place is no good. I think I'll look it up. So then you go to Zillow and get the address and look it up. And then you see the pictures. I mean, you drove by and you thought, why'd they do that? I mean, you would never tell them that. I mean, are you like this? Uh, There are stalkers on Zillow. And uh, they, they, they look through the house. But then, after they look at all the pictures, they get a clearer understanding of why it is that your friend wanted to have that house. Why it's glorious. But unseen until somebody reveals it to you, like the 37 pictures that are available on Zillow for that property at that address. Well, there's a sense in which Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. Are people cruising down the Audubon of what they're calling the good life? By the way, it's in that vintage rock and roll song entitled, It's a Highway to Hell. They hear uh, an inkling of, news about hey come to Jesus it looks like some pedestrian house that's not too interested in but then they roll up next to Romans and they start going through the Zillow pictures and they say oh the riches of oh the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God you mean he thought of all of this 
for anyone who would believe in Jesus Christ and come to place their faith in him? Yeah, that's him. He's that good. That's again why he starts with all. Warren Wiersbe said, only a God as wise as our God could take the fall of Israel and turn it into salvation for the whole world. That's what he explains in Romans 9, 10, and 11. But this high praise breaks out spontaneously. It encapsulates as well Romans 1 through 8, the gospel glory too, the gift of righteousness given and received by faith in Jesus Christ. Do you know him as your Savior? Why is there a doxology here? John Murray said, what constrains the doxology is revealed counsel. What we did not know before, Romans, God explains in Romans, and now that we know it, what's our response? Oh, how deep are the riches and the knowledge, and then the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Can you take in this vista? Do you see the beauty of Jesus? Is it as enamoring to you as it would be to stand on Everest and look at that vista? Second observation is God's plan discloses his rich skill and full knowledge. Oh, the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. I got an editorial this week from a friend who said, hey, Eric, the rich wield a lot of influence. I said, well, what do you mean? Well, they, they use their money as influence on things and they wield a lot of power. Nobody is rich like God. Oh, the depth of the riches of our Lord. Wisdom. God is rich in wisdom. If I find out somebody has means, I'm just a curious George, I often wonder, I wonder where their means came from. And so I'll ask somebody who knows them, hey, how did they come to their means? How did they get rich? What are they rich in? Here's God who is rich in wisdom. Now, wisdom is skill in living. It's an eloquent witness to God's understanding and his skill in life. I want to be right next to that person and learn all I can. Don't you? He's rich in wisdom. He's rich in knowledge. All-inclusive. Exhaustive knowledge. Have you ever thought the thought that there is nothing that God doesn't know? Now, for the sinner who's trying to hide his heart from a God before whom at the end of his life he'll stand and give an account, this knowledge messes with his conscience. For the dollar cost averaging follower of Jesus who believes in Jesus and is holding on with their fingernails to the promise of God, feeling beat up in the world and by the circumstances that they're in right now, this knowledge is wonderful. This knowledge makes you say, oh, I'm glad God knows. You know, we live in such an anonymous age, and technology makes us more anonymous, 
and that seem, may seem counterintuitive. No mounts, we got all this social media. No, we are simply uh, digitally together while alone. We can feel like nobody is noticing, worse, that nobody cares. And then we come to this doxology. Oh, the depth of the riches of the knowledge of God. God knows your heart this morning. He knows your fears this morning. He knows your anxieties this morning. He couldn't care more for you. He knows our sin. And he knows our disposition toward him. And he's still pursuing us. And loves us in Jesus Christ. God will never learn anything. He doesn't need to. Do you have a low opinion of God? You did not get it from Scripture. The third observation is this. This doxology arises spontaneously in the glorious depth of what God has disclosed. This is very important. Listen clear through and let's be careful with our listening. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. What's he talking about? He's talking about Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. What's he saying about it? He's saying God has revealed it to us. Oh yeah, now we can understand everything. No, he actually doesn't say that. He is saying that God has disclosed the mystery, told us things that we had not known before, and we don't get it all. We don't understand it all. It is the arrogant who conclude they know everything, and they know everything about God. God has just disclosed this, and Paul exclaims, oh, the depth the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Paul, tell us more. Tell us just a little bit extra about that. Well, how about this? How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Now, he uses the term depth. If you're a nautical person or a boating person, if you just got in from your yacht this summer, you know, you're back to church. Uh, oh, the depth how unsearchable. It's a word that means unfathomable. You know, they sound with sonar to find depths. Do you realize that the deepest part of the ocean is more than 36,000 feet deep? That's seven miles. You have to have a lot of sinker on your, your line, you know, to get down there. You know, that's, that's deep. That's deep. Uh, Mark Twain took that pen name, Samuel Clemens, uh, from the riverboat industry on the Mississippi. And they'd have the hands on each side of the ship with big old long sticks. And they'd want to mark the depth of the river. And so they had various calls out. And so if Joe was on the right side and Bob was on the left, you know, they're putting that stick down. And they would yell before they put the stick down, mark, and then a depth had a term for it. And so they would yell out, and, and the captain would know how deep the waters were. Well, Mark Twain was, uh, hey, it's, it's, it's clear 
going. There's depth here to allow this craft to take off, and it's smooth going. Let's get right out there and get after it. So mark this, mark that, mark Twain. That was a good word, and Samuel Clemens said, I'm going to use that, and that was his pen name. Well, I want you to know if you stand on the boat of understanding God and have a big old long stick, here's the point that Paul's making. Your stick's not long enough. You'll never mark the depths of it. That should make us all humble before a God who is, here's what Edward says, infinite upon infinite. He uses that phrase. I love that. Is that how you view God? By the way, do you like to fish? I have some fishermen friends. They have boats. Um, I've never done any good fishing, so I don't like it. I love fishermen. I love the talking part, uh, the greasy part, and the, you know, catfish stinging you, and, and the, the, the gills that rub against your skin, and getting the hook out, you know, four feet down their throat. I, I don't like that stuff. But it's amazing. Um, you know, fishing used to be a sport. Now it's all fishing in a barrel. Isn't, isn't that true? You get these sonar devices, you know, and then, then you know, men, they're in contests who can have the best technology on their boat. So you roll up next to a guy's fishing boat and, you know, it looks like the Starship Enterprise. Says, What's that? Oh, I'll tell you what, man, that helps me. How does it help you? You know, so they sound down and um, they figure out where the five fish are in the reservoir. You know, they get right on top of them. They know the depth and they know where they are. And then they drop the line and get them. Oh, yeah, I'm a big fisherman, you know. No, you just spend a lot of money on your technology. That's how you got it. But here's what Paul's saying. You can get the greatest piece of technology, roll up over the top of the wisdom of God, and you'll start to get no readings on your depth finder. You just get a bunch of question marks. Because the depth is so profound and outwits the instrumentation that we have to say it's unfathomable. Now, he uses another word here. Not only that it's so deep, he uses this word unsearchable. I'm sorry, inscrutable, inscrutable. Let's talk about that word for a minute. It means literally unable to be tracked out. My dad and I used to hunt. I thought I liked hunting. And then dad died and I realized I just like being with dad. That's why I went. I haven't hunted since. And um, he... um, my dad was like an Indian in the woods. He could always tell and was conscious of what was going on around him, even before light and as we we're prosecuting the hunt. Why, uh, he could pick out deer sign and see it long before, and then he'd tell me where it was. And after he would tell me, I would look and say, well, why didn't I see that? Why didn't I get that? And if he had to track something, he could pick up the track. Somehow, I don't know how I did it. If there's a blood trail, if there's a drop of blood, you know, he'd find it. Oh, look on this leaf. How'd you find that? What well, was here, you know, just a few feet away from the track, and so I looked at it. And then if there wasn't another drip for, you know, 30 yards, somehow he'd find the drip and the track, and we'd, we'd keep going. He, w- he just had a knack for that. And some guys are like that. Uh, whatever that is, I don't have that. I want you to know that you can't track God out for total understanding. It's not possible. His ways are inscrutable. Now this is what he's revealed. This is not, we cannot understand what God has not revealed about himself. Now that's true, and everybody would say, duh, that's like the Homer Simpson point of this morning. 
But what he's saying here is we can't understand entirely what he has revealed about his great plan. Isn't that amazing? And that's what's here. I love the character Aslan in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, the children's fantasy. It's the archetypical figure for Jesus Christ. Aslan is always present, but often not seen. He is not traceable, but he's always active. And he shows up when he wants to show up and reveals himself. And if you want to understand the ways of God, think of Lewis's Aslan, because that's like God. God's ways are not traceable. To human understanding, he can be unconventional. Do we give God here at Calvary the freedom to be God? Or have we put him in the box of what we can understand about him? Is it okay not to understand entirely all that God's revealed? This doxology praises a God who reveals his plan that we do not entirely get and understand. Praising a God who has disclosed what we do not comprehend entirely. This spawns real praise to such a God. Yes, one whom we do not completely understand. Remember Jesus' beatitude of the unoffended? John the Baptist is in prison. He sends word, hey, go ask him. Are you the one we're supposed to look for? Or are we supposed to look for somebody else? It was basically, I'm rotting in prison. You know, get me out of here. Here's what Jesus said. After he said the nicest thing, no prophet was ever like John the Baptist, he, he, this long litany of affirmation, then he says this, blessed is the one who's not offended in me. Blessed is he who's not offended in me. Vance Havner called that the beatitude of the unoffended. That's the person that's going to let God be God even when we don't understand what this great God is doing and how we are being affected by what he is doing. Blessed is he who's not offended in me. Now, since it's just us kids here, as we work through the words of this text, including predestination, election, grace, how you like this phrase, it's in the Bible. Esau have I hated. Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. That's another phrase here. I think it's an open secret that the pot here at Calvary Baptist Church has been stirred. A few, I accent the term few, a few have reacted with concern. One or two significantly. And as we finish this glorious section in the book of Romans, in this great doxology, I just want to ask, are we allowing the text to frame our understanding and our worship of the living God? Now, this text asks us three questions. Let's ask them. Yield up our hearts to our Lord and go home and look forward to this good week that lies before us. If we'll let it, this doxology will run into the catacombs of our own heart. Three questions. Number one, 
do we recognize that God exists in a category all by himself? Look at verse 34. Look at verse 35. God is God and we are not. God is free and does what he will and he is right. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? There'll be a golfer who's doing really good in professional golf. And somebody will say, interview him. Hey, who's your teacher? And he'll say, you know, Butch Harmon or David Ledbetter. Or he, he mentions some teacher, the latest and the greatest, whoever it is this week, I forget. Sean, somebody's this week's. And then everybody will want to go to that person. Because if they taught Tiger Woods how to play golf or this person how to play golf, you know, it, go to that person. We want to go to the counselor that counseled him. I want you to know, nobody has ever given God any counsel. He hasn't needed any. Now, the other thing, and this is what is here, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. Have you ever realized that God is not indebted to us? That he doesn't owe us anything? We've never done anything for him that would obligate him then to do something for us. There's a raging political, politically created controversy now over quote-unquote ethics on the Supreme Court. It stems from the constitution of the court, decisions that have come down, holdings in the last three terms that are not liked. And now there's a controversy swarming around a few of the justices, including Clarence Thomas, who has a wealthy friend in Dallas that he was introduced to in the 80s, and they've hung out together. Now, you know, we're, we're blue-collar people here, middle-class people here, a few upper-middle class, you know, and we take vacations. But there are vacations, and then there are vacations. And the super-wealthy do stuff that we cannot imagine, like you know, I mean, we love our friends, and so, you know, we go to Skyline. And um, they love their friends, and they put them on their jet, and they take them to their lodge, and they uh, do things together. And now it's a huge controversy because it's saying, Justice Thomas could not ever be fair because he is beholden to that person who for 40 years he's hung out with and gone on vacation with. So he can't be fair. That's a violation of a code of ethics. Because if that guy would ever have business that would come before the court, why, Justice Thomas would be beholden to this man because he owes him because of all the times they've been together. I want you to know that God doesn't owe anybody anything, including us. That's why we sing amazing grace and in our hearts we feel it really is amazing because we got grace from God, something we don't deserve, and he didn't owe it to us. God is under no obligation to us. And yet he offered his son for us. That's enough to make you say, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. In 1963, Jack Nichols, a professional golfer, was playing in the, at Augusta National Golf Club in the 1963 Major Masters Golf Tournament. He smashed the field and played over everyone 
and it was extraordinary. Watching the event was a man who was the most famous amateur golfer that ever lived, a man named Bobby Jones, who had developed the Augusta National Golf Club there in uh, southeast Georgia. And he's watching. So everybody wanted to know, I wonder what Bobby Jones thinks of what Jack Nicklaus is doing out there at the Masters Golf Tournament. So somebody stuck a microphone after the fourth day, the finish round when Jack smashed the field. Well, Bobby, what do you think? He said this, Jack is playing an entirely different game, a game with which I'm not familiar. When you think of God, I want you to know that he is existing in a way with which humanity is not familiar. That's who he is. We worship a God who is unlike us. We're not familiar with his ways. Some of his ways that he's revealed, including his great plan of salvation, are hard to wrap our minds around. I mean, incomprehensible hard. I mean, Job asked a long time ago, if you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Answer, nothing. We have nothing to offer God except our sin. And he offers the best of himself in his son freely. What a savior. Secondly, are we to conclude that God doesn't know what he's doing? Look at verses 33 and 34. Am I the only one who ever wondered, what is going on? God, what are you doing? I don't understand. This is mystifying to me. If God's ways are proved inscrutable and fathomless, then we will traverse through episodes of being, here it is, clueless. You say, Eric, that's really helpful. That's exactly where I am this morning. I haven't got a clue why I'm going through this or what's going on or why I've been through this and am going through this and where this is going to go. God knows what he's doing. We have to step where we cannot see and undergo where we do not understand. We have an English phrase, that's too deep for me. Well, you're, you're on the right track when you think of God. It's deep. That's why he uses this word deep. I mean, unfathomable deep. Like stick not long enough to hit the bottom. Deep. Here's the deal. God knows what he's doing. That encouraged me this week, and I've been praying about something for several years, specifically in Jesus' name, invoking the promises of God and throwing it on the altar repeatedly. I mean, importune widow kind, constant knocking at the door. If I was to stand before a jury and was asked to prove that God was answering that prayer, I would have no exhibits to offer our Lord. Nothing. I got nothing. All I have is who he is. And what I do understand, although clearly I can't understand everything, what I do understand about who he is is enough for me to sustain a trusting heart because God knows all about what I'm pouring my heart out before him. He knows. And more than knowing, he is at work. Oh, the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Last question is this. Has our theology ever become our doxology 
and fueled our devotion to Jesus Christ. We sang it. It was sweet to me because I've just soaked in this all week. For, look at verse 36. From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Our ultimate devotion is to be to God. Theology is not what is to satisfy our curiosity. It is to reshape our living, to reshape our attitude, reshape how we suffer. It is to be an emotional ballast. Our living is to be a statement of worship and devotion and praise to this one who loved us and gave himself for us. How right life is. Kent Hughes said, when theology becomes doxology. Followers of Jesus Christ are devoted to the one in verse 36, to whom and for whom are all things for time and forever. Now then, what could ever dethrone self from the throne room of our lives? In Western culture, we're born and bred to think most and first and highest of ourselves. We are all about me and mine in America. We are terminally selfish and me-centered. We're trained to be. What cures us in one fell swoop is exposure to these riches. The wisdom and the knowledge of God manifest in Jesus Christ. We discover we are not the hero of our salvation story. And we can't be, and that's all right. And it's glorious to enthrone him as the hero to be magnified. Indeed, hallelujah, what a savior. Who knew that the key to overcoming a narcissistic age was enfolding this sweet doxology in our hearts and lifting our head up to live for him each day. Heavenly Father, Glory be to Jesus Christ, our Lord. Forgive us for our arrogance. Forgive us for our puny spirits in invoking what we declare that we understand about you. We humble ourselves to come to you, the great, majestic, glorious God of the Bible revealed in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ, made known to us by the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to everyone who has believed. Oh, Father, make us be people here who walk around in our spirits. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom knowledge, God. Help us hold our convictions, certainly, and yet with humility. Lord, there's a lot about you we don't understand that you've revealed, but what we do understand is so sweet to us. Oh, God, make us to be a church driven by the beauty of Jesus, who's lifted up in our midst, and he's the hero of Calvary, always and ever. The one to whom we look. Men will come and men will go. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We worship him.
Hear us sing. Hear our hearts pray to you. Work in our midst, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We stand. Let's sing before we go home. Praise to him. To the